Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 4. This is our 10th week and our final week in this series, which I've just been so thankful for the way uh, that God has ministered to me through it. I'm grateful for Pastor Adam's sermon last week. And uh, what a great uh, letter that we have in the Bible. This morning we'll be covering verses 9 through 22, so we're going to wrap up again this series. I got home from an elder meeting on Monday night, I guess it was about 9 o'clock, and I went upstairs and my wife and, and daughter were up there watching a movie, and I thought about for a moment kind of jumping in, you know, and, uh, but they were a little over halfway through, and I thought it's going to take me 45 minutes to figure out what's going on, and so uh, by that time the movie will be over. And they made it very clear to me in a loving way that they did not want me up there if I was going to be asking questions every 30 seconds, you know, who's that, and, and why do you say that, and how did this happen, and apparently I do that uh, a lot when I'm watching movies with people. Uh, but, and when I do it now with my, with my family, my wife and my daughter in particular, when I say something, if we're all watching a movie for the first time and I ask a question, I get that look. You know what that look is? The look says, I've seen exactly the same amount of this movie as you have, so I don't know anything that you don't know, so please don't ask any questions. So I, I kind of got that look. I went downstairs, uh, had some popcorn, I watched some basketball, and it was, it was a fine evening, um, but... What I realized was, again, something that I already knew, and that is, you know, you can't really jump in the middle of a movie or a story and really fully understand what's going on. It's like that with the, the Bible, or the books of the Bible. You can't jump in at the very end and have a full understanding of what's happened before, which is one of the reasons that we are committed to expositional preaching. We work our way through books of the Bible, section by section, and the passage that we're in this morning Again, it's located at the very end of this letter. These are Paul's closing remarks to Timothy. And, and I have to be candid with you, sometimes these closing remarks are, are hard to apply because you have very personal things said to people that we've never met, people we don't know. Uh, and so it's kind of hard to apply them. And it's also uh, equally challenging to preach some of the closing remarks of the Bible. You know, there are those, those passages in the Bible that are easy to preach, you know. Uh, Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's a good preaching passage. But then when you get, um, hey, bring my coat that I left at Carpus's house in Troas, that's not as easy. And that's where we are this morning in those uh, remarks. But I believe, we believe, as we've already seen in this very letter, that all Scripture, every word of the Bible, is breathed out by God and is profitable it's helpful for us, and in some ways, it points us to Christ, His person in His work. And keep in mind, this, even though this was a personal letter that we've been studying, it was not a private letter. And so it was intended to be read by, to the whole church, allowed so that the whole church could benefit. And not just the church at that time, but the church uh, for all ages. So uh, this morning, we're going to see something, I think, very very pertinent, very relevant to where we are uh, at this point in our life and world history and so on. We're going to see the, see the need for, really the value of presence. The value of presence. And we're going to see three things. The comfort, the forgiveness, and the hope that come from the presence of another. So this is, it all kind of flows together. So let me just read the whole section, verses 9 through 22. Here is the word of the Lord, Paul speaking to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me 
and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet uh, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the other brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So we read that, that final section, and, and right away we get a sense of what Paul is feeling. He's feeling deserted because he's been deserted. And so we see this list of people there who have uh, abandoned him, and he's, he's sitting in prison, and it was sort of famed Mamertine prison in Rome. It was like a dungeon. There was just one hole above that you could look up for light and for food. He's sitting there, and he's reflecting. He's reminiscing on all that he's been through, but he's not doing so with bitterness. He's not doing so with hatred, but really from the perspective of a realist. And he wants Timothy to have realistic expectations for what will happen uh, in his ministry, so that Timothy can finish strongly. And as a realist, Paul is naming names. He's actually naming names. Look at this list of characters who deserted him. First, he says, Demas, in verse 10, uh, left Paul for Thessalonica. Demas was a fellow worker with Paul, we're told in a different letter. Uh, Demas was part of the inner circle. He was a friend, a close friend of the Apostle Paul. And he decides this is just too much for him. All the pressure, all the scrutiny, all the spotlight, it's more than he can handle. Now, we shouldn't surmise from this that Demas left Jesus or abandoned the faith or apostatized, um, but he does decide to distance himself from Paul. He's more concerned with his own personal comfort than, uh, than ministering to Paul, which, of course, naturally really hurt Paul. Then you have Crescens and Titus who were sent out on mission, one across the Adriatic Sea, uh, to Galatia, the other across the Aegean Sea, to Dalmatia. These men didn't technically desert Paul. Again, they were sent out on mission, but they did leave Paul, and Paul felt that. Tychicus has gone to Ephesus, but he says, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Luke was the, uh, the so-called beloved physician. He was Paul's travel companion, biographer, personal doctor, close friend, uh, he's the one who wrote the book of Acts, which we just finished studying as a church, you know, a few weeks ago or months ago. Um, Luke was with Paul through thick and thin, through one imprisonment to another imprisonment, but even Luke uh, couldn't go in and remain in the Mamertine prison with Paul. He, had, he couldn't live there with Paul, um, and he had other responsibilities as well. So Paul felt alone because he was alone. And not only was Paul abandoned by his friends, there were some who actively opposed Paul. Alexander, we're told in verse 14, had done Paul great harm. Now, we don't know for sure, but, 
The language, the context, tradition seems to suggest that it might have been Alexander who actually turned in Paul to the authorities uh, when Paul was preaching the gospel. And so all that to say, Paul has been deserted, he's been abandoned, he's been betrayed, and in his solitude, he implores Timothy to come to him soon. He wants Timothy to be with him. And when you come, Paul tells Timothy, bring my coat. So cold weather is coming. Bring my books, he says, and most of all, bring the parchments. The parchments were animal skins. We don't know exactly what was contained uh, therein, but it probably uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament portions of the Hebrew Scriptures, and maybe even a collection of the sayings of Jesus. And Paul says, bring those, and then Paul says, get Mark and bring him too. Now, as a side note, um, I've heard people in church, okay, not this church, but I've heard people in other churches seriously say, I don't really want to study any other books written by humans, you know, other people. I just read the Bible, right? Of course, that sounds really spiritual, right? Um, But if somebody says that, what they must believe is they're more spiritual than Paul, who met the Lord Jesus face to face, who uh, was caught up in the third heaven to witness things that he couldn't even speak of. And yet here he is on the verge of being killed, and he says to Timothy, bring me my books. These are books written by other people. There is tremendous value in reading books written by godly teachers, alive and dead. The life of a pastor, indeed, the life of the Christian, uh, ought to be characterized by continual learning, continued uh, growth and spiritual maturity, maturation. I'm mentioned in the elder meeting on Monday, I'm so inspired by the likes of John Stodd and, and J.I. Packer and Eugene Peterson and uh, the great Baptist preacher Vance Havner and others who kept on learning and growing even into their 80s and 90s. Even our own Jerry Flanagan, who's not in his 80s or 90s yet, but he's constantly learning and growing. And the things he says to me and the emails he sends, I'm, I sends, I'm so encouraged by this constant growth and development. Paul had the same mindset. He wants to read. He wants his books. There's some stuff that Paul wants. But most of all, most of all, he wants to see his friends. He wants to enjoy the blessings of God that come with being with his brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's our first point this morning. We talk about this idea of presence, right? The comfort of God is most acutely experienced in the physical presence of believing friends. You know, God, he, sometimes he, he ministers to us, we, we say, uh, immediately, you know, in a supernatural, profound, inexplicable way. But most of the time, God ministers to us immediately, through means, through other people. And the comfort of God is something that we experience, again, most acutely in the physical presence of believing friends. Now, this was meant for ministers, but it was also meant for all of God's people. For those in ministry, Paul wants them to know that they shouldn't think for a second that there won't be times when they are alone and abandoned in ministry. They will experience these times, even times when they're deserted by their own colleagues, fellow Uh, former co-workers, and so on. People they poured their lives into will leave them. Some will even turn against them, Paul says. He wants pastors to know this. This is why he details the abandonment that he suffered. Paul wants ministers to know that 
the people they prayed for and served alongside and wept with may very well one day disappear. Then the minister will find out that they're at another church that has a better whatever. And so Paul wants, wants ministers to know this. So for pastors, again, this is a sobering warning. You will be abandoned and you will at times be alone. This is part of the cost of shepherding the flock of God. But this is also a word of inspired instruction for every one of us. And that is we need to be around other Christians. There's something about being in the physical presence of another person, particularly a believer, that that brings healing and hope and joy, that stirs us at the soul level. Without the presence of other people, we can't enjoy the fullness of our humanity. We need to be around other people. Uh, From 2001 to 2011, uh, every odd year, I went to South Africa and I worked with a ministry there that rescues children who were orphaned by the AIDS virus, a ministry called Bethesda Outreach International. And I was there just to provide guidance and help. I was a board member. And um, when I would go there, every time I would hear, of course, multiple stories about babies who had been abandoned. Some left at the doorstep of, of another person. Some left in the city square, in the middle of the, the town, just left there crying uh, in, in some sort of bassinet or wrapped up. And, and this was just one story after another. And I'll, I'll never forget some of those stories uh, there, was a young, there was a boy whose name was Shane, and he was, a, he was left in his hospital crib for three years. Never picked up, never held. He was, he was fed by way of a Dixie cup. He was in that crib for three years. And when he was first held and first embraced by a family, um, he was terrified. He had never been touched, never been loved, uh, never been held in that way. And it actually took Shane years Years, and I knew him from the time he was three all the way until the time he was 16. It took him years to trust, years to have healthy relationships, because he was abandoned during those early uh, years. In his new book, You're Only Human, that we're reading and discussing uh, as a staff, Kelly uh, Capich, who's uh, on staff at Covenant College in, in Lookout Mountain, he writes this, Each of us was made for communion with others like us, and without it we experience the isolation and solitude that easily breed loneliness and despair. It is not good for Adam to be alone, God said, so God moved Adam from solitude into companionship. Fundamental to this move by God is the human need for other humans, which is never less than the physical presence of other people. There's a reason that many consider solitary confinement as a form of torture, while others now engage in cuddle parties in order to address this unmet need. Now, just as a side note, if you're organizing a cuddle party, just skip over my name on the invite list, okay? I'll, I'll catch you at the next, uh, the next gathering. Um, but we need, the, we need the physical presence of other people. The Jewish people, remember Jesus was a Jew. They had, they had a practice called sitting shiva which is where those who had lost someone, those who were grieving, who were mourning, other people would come and sit on low stools around them, and they wouldn't say anything. They would just sit there and be present. The great Johnny Cash picked up on this beautifully in a song he wrote to his wife in 1970 called Flesh and Blood. And the song tells the story. He spends the day out 
uh, listening to and watching the, this, this brook, this river, and hearing the sounds of the river and watching the sky as the sun would descend and, and hearing the, the, the sounds of birds chirping and so on. And he says at the end of that, after all of that experience, he says in the last verse, when the day ended, I was still not satisfied. Why? Because he was alone. And we were created to experience human fellowship. So he writes as the final refrain to his wife, flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. We need to be in the presence of other believers. And, and I think, frankly, this is, this is why the pandemic that we're coming out of has caused so much harm and even brought on consequences we haven't fully realized yet because of the isolation that we've experienced. You know, we talked all the time about during the, the pandemic when it reached its peak about the cost of, you know, being together and people debated that on and on. You know, there's the cost you could get sick and you could get hospitalized, you could get COVID, you get, could get some other uh, disease. But we rarely ever talked about the cost of not gathering together. The spiritual, emotional, and physical loneliness and the despair caused by it. There's no substitute for a real person who will walk beside you as you suffer or come and sit in your living room as you grieve or as you celebrate or kneel with you in prayer, even if it's beside a hospital bed. What happens in those moments cannot be replicated by time on a screen or by an online service. We need to be in the presence of other people. Now, for some of us, Maybe that means establishing a pattern of faithfulness in the, with the gathered worship. It's time. It's time. Uh, for others, maybe it means we need to pursue people relationally. Paul was alone and abandoned, and he wanted to be with his friends because he understood that the comfort of God is most acutely experienced in the physical presence of believing friends. And he needed his friends to attend to him because he'd been deserted by everyone else. Look at verse 16 again. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, and you were standing trial in the first century Rome, which, which Paul did, and then there were, there were certain things, there were certain prerogatives, certain priorities that were yours. For example, the judicial process called for the gathering of witnesses to stand before the Roman magistrate. And as a person on trial, a person on trial had the right by law to have witnesses speak in his defense. But there was not one person who came to serve Paul as an eyewitness in his defense. That's what Paul means when he says, no one came to stand by me. And I keep in mind, there was a growing Christian church in Rome at that time. There was a group of believers who met right where Paul was on trial. Paul writes to them in a book known as Romans, and he says, he says to them how much he appreciates them and how well known their faith is. And he says he loves them so much that he would even be accursed himself if it meant, and I know this can't happen, but if it meant for their salvation. This is the depth of Paul's love for them, and they express their love for Paul too. But in his darkest hour, when he needs somebody to come and say, no, that's not what happened, there was nobody to be found. They were terrified by the Roman authorities and all those who had pledged their love and allegiance to Paul were gone. But there is one who stood by him. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's been abandoned by his friends, but the Lord stood by him. Now the the Greek word here for Lord is a reference to the Lord Jesus. Jesus stood by him. Jesus had not deserted Paul. Jesus has been there for Paul and strengthened him. Uh, New Testament scholar William Mounts writes very succinctly, even though Paul was deserted at this hearing, he was not alone for the Lord Jesus was by his side. So just as Jesus promised before he ascended, uh, just as Jesus promised to all of his disciples that he would be with them at every moment, that there would never be any time, not even a single moment, that he was not with them, here he is with Paul. And I mentioned at the beginning, this, this passage, so much of it is about presence, the value of presence. Well, here it is. Here it is, the presence of the Lord Jesus that is Paul's ongoing strength. And this is what Jesus does, by the way, for every one of his brothers and sisters, for every one of his followers. He is constantly there, always praying for us, always pouring out his strength, giving us the words to say when we don't know what to say, guiding us and attending to us when everyone else is gone. If you're in Christ this morning, you need to know you are not alone. You may feel alone, and you may feel like everyone else has abandoned you, but you are not alone. The risen Christ is with you. He is present with you, And he will always be with you, and not in a sort of, I wish I could help way. He is with you in power and mercy and strength, and he will preserve you. And I hope this is not the case for you, but but maybe you feel abandoned because you really have been abandoned. And the people that you trusted have left you. Well, you need to know there's one who will never leave you. And that is the exalted and risen Christ. He's with you even now. I'll never forget finishing a sermon 10 years ago. And a little boy came up to me, probably in third grade at the time. And I love it when kids come up with questions. And, and their questions are great. And their comments are, are wonderful. And I love that. But this kid's comment was heartbreaking. Came up to me. And he just crumbled and started weeping. He said, my dad left us last night. And he said... He doesn't ever want to see us again. And I was just crushed by that. I was crushed by that. And so I kneeled down, and I just put my arm on his shoulder, and I said, I, that, that, that breaks my heart. And I can't imagine the pain you're feeling. But I do want you to know that you have a father who loves you, and you have a father who will never, ever leave you. And you have a Savior in Jesus who knows what it's like to have the people that he cared about leave him. And this poor kid, I mean, he, he, you know, we prayed together, and, and I don't know, you know th- th- how helpful that was, but I know over the years he, he just began to depend more and more and more on his heavenly Father and became more and more anchored in the gospel. Paul says in verse 18 that the Lord Jesus who stood by him will rescue him from every evil deed. Now, I take this to have a double meaning. Certainly on one level, Paul's confident that Jesus will not let any form of abandonment, any form of desertion, any so-called scheme of man to derail him on his mission or to 
prevent him from making it to his eternal home. Jesus will prevent, quote, evildoers like Alexander and even the emperor from snatching Paul away from his position in Christ. So Jesus will rescue Paul from that sense, from the present evildoers, from those who seek to harm Paul. But I think there's more to it than that, actually. I think Paul's greatest confidence was that Jesus would rescue Paul from Paul's own evil deeds. In other words, Jesus would not allow Paul's own evil deeds, Paul's own sins, to destroy him or to cause Paul to suffer God's eternal wrath. Well, how would Jesus rescue Paul from Paul's evil deeds? By suffering betrayal and by being deserted himself. And by suffering a kind of desertion that no other human being has ever endured. Talk about being betrayed. Jesus knows what that's like. At his darkest hour, on the eve of his crucifixion, what does Mark tell us about all the disciples? He says very succinctly, and they all fled. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Talk about being abandoned. Jesus knows what that's like in a way we'll never know. Jesus was abandoned by God the Father, forsaken on the cross, where Jesus bore our sins, took on the concentrated evil of the world so that we could be forever received by God the Father. What did Jesus cry out on the cross in Aramaic? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the sin of the world, heaped on the sinless one Jesus, who would die in our place, God the Father had to turn away from His Son. And the ancient, eternal fellowship between Father and Son was broken. Now, there's all kinds of debate on the internet about everything, but there's all kinds of debate about, did Jesus really turn His face away from His Son? This is kind of prompted by, actually, the beautiful song, How how Deep the Father's Love. And so there are those who argue, "Did, did, did the Father really turn His face from the Son? That whole debate is an adventure in missing the point. And here's what I mean. God doesn't have a face. He's a spirit. God is spirit. Um, it's a metaphor, right? It's a, to be specific, it's an anthropomorphism. To be face-to-face with God is to experience His blessing. It's to be in His approving presence, to experience His favor. To have God turn His face against you is to experience God's curse, God's wrath, that's precisely what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. He experienced the full force of the Father's wrath in our place. One theologian says it like this, the spiritual forsakenness, spiritual wrath from the Father occurs deep down in the very Godhead itself. We dare not speculate lest we blaspheme, but something was torn. In the very fabric of the relationship between father and son, the son was abandoned by the father. And that act, the son sent by the father, dying on the cross for the sins of his people, the sinless one suffering for the sins of others, in that act we see a profound picture of the mercy of God. Talk about the presence, the value of presence. Here's our second point. The forgiveness of God is secured By the presence of God's Son, who was forsaken by the Father, so that we could be welcomed 
by God. You know, the importance of physical presence is not something that uh, we came up with, did not originate with us, nor is it unique to our culture or our context. Most significantly, it is a model and practice that reflects the very character of God. God became physically present with us. John 1 says the Word became flesh and dwelt with us, tabernacled with us. Jesus came to us. God came down to us to live. God did not just send a message. He embodied the message. And of course, Jesus Christ, God with us, the Logos of God, didn't come just to be a message. He came to be the salvation of His people. We enter this world at odds with God. We have been infected with sin because of the rebellion of our first parents. And Paul, the same apostle, says very clearly that sin and death enter the world by one man. So we enter into this world as those who have been infected with sin. And every time we choose our way over God's way, every time we love something more than we love God, Every time we allow our hearts to become captivated by other things, we only affirm the rebellion of our first parents and show that we too are corrupt in nature and continue to pile upon ourselves this moral debt. And because of that, we stand rightly accused by God, fair recipients of God's holy wrath. What we need is not to improve morally, What we need is not to sin less. What we really need is to be rescued from every evil deed. Indeed, what we need is to be forgiven, reconciled, and brought back to God. But that requires someone to bear God's curse, the curse of God for our sins. And the only person, as we recited today by way of catechism, who is able to do that is someone who is both God, fully God, and fully man. So the only person who could bear the cost... The curse of our sin is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And you know, I mean, desertion can take on many forms, can't it? Abandonment can take on many forms. When Paul was on trial, his friends kept their distance because they didn't want to have to be called in for questioning. They didn't want to have to undergo what he was undergoing. At his worst hour, Paul's friends disappeared. And if you've been through this, You know what this feels like. This can feel like a divorce, or even worse, this can feel like a death when you've been abandoned in that way. This kind of desertion, again, can happen in a variety of ways. Certainly it did did for Paul. Sometimes abandonment, desertion, takes takes shape in, in outright overt betrayal. Someone you care about turns against you, slanders you, disparages you, even actively tries to harm you. Paul experienced that. That's what Alexander the coppersmith did. At other times, that desertion can be more subtle. It can be someone just slowly withdrawing from you. It can be a disappearing act by a friend when you're most in need. Or it can happen when someone refuses to stand by your side when you're under attack. Paul experienced that. That's what Demas did. And sometimes desertion equals silence. You need someone to speak up for you, and no one is there to speak up for you. Paul suffered all of those. 
but reminiscent of Stephen, the first disciple to lose his life for the sake of the gospel, Paul says he doesn't want God to hold us against those who've deserted him. He says, may it not be charged against them. Now, what does that remind us of? The words of Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Why would Jesus pray that? It's because his death, even his crucifixion, was all part of God's sovereign plan to bring salvation to a lost and sin-cursed world. Sent by God, Jesus lived a perfect life, obeying fully all of the Father's commands. He never sinned. And yet, even so, He was punished for our sin so that we could be declared righteous. Even though He knew no sin, God made Him to be sin so that we might become by faith the righteousness of God. So what happened on the cross is God put the ledgers away. He settled all accounts. He put all of our offenses on Jesus. So never again would we, as God's children, have to worry about God's wrath. Never again will we have to worry or concern ourselves about how God sees us. At the moment that God saves us, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' record becomes our record. His merit becomes our merit. His obedience becomes our obedience. So it's, it's even more beautiful than just having our sins forgiven. Although, praise God for that beautiful reality. It's actually being credited, being given the obedience of Christ. As a first-year seminary student, we had a pastor's conference. Uh, this is like the fall of my, my first year. And I heard Dr. Benjamin Stanley Baker, who was an African-American, terrific preacher from Detroit. He told the story of delivering a message at a funeral for, for a well-known kingpin. And he's delivering this, this message, and he said that the, the place is just packed. This guy was uh, well-known in the community, well-known in the city of Detroit. And he said that in the audience, it was just a packed crowd of addicts, prostitutes, and ex-convicts. And in this message, Dr. Baker preached that God has the power to erase your sin record and make you new. But when he announced in his message to the audience that God can give you back your virginity, there was a lady, that was more than one lady could handle. She stood up and said, are you talking to me? He said, I'm talking to you. She said, you're crazy. You you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I've done. Well, despite that lady's protestation, the reality is that Dr. Baker was exactly right in what he was saying. According to the Scriptures, believers in Christ enjoy something seemingly impossible, a completely clean slate. Jesus rescues us from every evil deed and that they will never be held against us again. And as I said, it gets even better than that. If you are in Christ this morning, God doesn't see you as clean until you mess up again. He doesn't see you as morally neutral, kind of vacillating between good and bad. God sees you as perfectly obedient in Christ. Despite everything you've done, despite everything I've done, God sees us as perfectly obedient in Christ. Now, our task is to live in light of that new reality, empowered by the Spirit, living in grateful and spontaneous obedience, again, fully resting on the Spirit, fully trusting in the gospel, recognizing that we are completely loved and accepted, and nothing will ever change that. 16th century German theologian Zacharias Ursinus said this, 
God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. And this next part is critical. As if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So in other words, not only are we given a new identity, not only are we given a new righteousness, we're also, incredible as it may sound, given a new history. Our history has been changed. And we're also given a new future. Look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God has created us to live in the presence of others, other human beings, other people like us, created like us, but also to live in his presence. And while that prospect was ruined by the sin of our first parents, it has been made possible and certain again because of the work of Jesus. Here's our final point this morning as it relates to presence. The hope of the believer is the future presence of God to be enjoyed for all eternity without the threat of violence, injustice, or sin. I asked the Capshaw, we have this ministry, as you know, on Wednesday nights, Capshaw Academy. We just finished up the last class for the spring, but I asked the class a couple of weeks ago, what will be the difference between creation, the original creation, and new creation? In other words, we know that that God, this whole story of the Bible is God restoring and, and uh, reconciling, buying back sinful creation, the whole world, so that everything beautiful and pristine and perfect about the Garden of Eden will be ours to enjoy and to fill out culturally. But there is going to be one key difference. Well, something that makes the new creation that is ours in Christ far better than the, even the original creation. And that is, in the new creation, there won't even be the possibility of sin. In the original creation, as beautiful as it was, there was the possibility of sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. In the new creation, we will enjoy the the real presence of God. God with us. The book of Revelation tells us those early 20s in the chapters. God will come to be with us. And He will never leave and will never again have to worry about injustice. We'll never have to worry again about violence or hatred or evil We'll never even have to worry about sin committed against us or even sinning ourselves because all will be made perfect and whole through the work of Christ. And so, again, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 9 through 22, the presence, it's all about presence, the importance of us being physically present with others, the significance of the incarnation, God with us, God Uh, coming down with us and in the person of Christ, actually suffering, being betrayed and abandoned for us, and then the future presence of God that will be enjoyed by all of those who are in Christ for all eternity without any hope, without any fear of sin or threat of violence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us to believe this morning what you've called us to accept and receive? Will you help us to take confidence and delight in who you are And what you've done by sending your son to bring about peace, shalom, reconciliation. What an incredible thing to consider that you now see us as obedient, as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. The one who knew no sin but was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God by faith. 
Father, help us to believe and help us to take great joy this morning that even though we have no business, no right, no prerogative as it, appro- as it relates to approaching your throne, the throne of God on our own, but in Christ we have this full and perfect plea and we can now come to you with boldness, with joy, with expectation that you will indeed do great things for us and things that bring glory to your name. Again, help us to receive it and to live in light of it in Christ's name. Amen.